0: section twelve of volume one of symbolism by johann adam Moller, translated by james burton robertson this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one subheading two the lutheran doctrine on man's original state luther by no means called in question the fact that adam was positively holy and just on the contrary he was totally unacquainted with the later negative conceptions of a state of mere innocency an indifference between good and evil, wherein the paradisiac man is represented to have existed, and was accordingly far removed from those opinions which make the doctrine of the fall foolishness, and make the human race adopt a course which is the necessary entrance into evil, in order to serve as a transition to a self-conscious return to good. Unhappily he fell into other errors, which considered in their consequences outweigh, at least, those we have mentioned. Respecting original justice, Luther brought no new and peculiar views into vogue. He only selected, out of the rich store of theories which the fruitfulness of scholasticism had produced, the one which seemed most favorable to his own opinions, handled it with no great dexterity, and, in the form which it assumed under his hands, Interwove it in such a way into his whole system of doctrine that the latter, without it, cannot be at all understood. Hence, it is only later that its full importance in the whole Lutheran system will become perceptible. Against those theologians who called Adam's acceptableness before God supernatural, Luther asserted it to be natural, and in opposition to the schoolmen who regarded it as accidental he conceived it to be essential to human nature, an integral and constitutive part of the same. Essay De Natura De Essentia hominis. He meant to say the pure nature of man as it sprung forth at the omnipotent word of the Creator comprised absolutely in itself all the conditions to render it pleasing unto God, that the various parts of Adam's nature, by the peculiar energy inherent in them, were maintained in the most beautiful harmony, and the whole man preserved in his due relation to God. The religious faculty, especially of the first man, in virtue of an inborn fullness of energy, expanded itself in a way acceptable to the deity, so that, without any supernatural aid, he truly knew God, believed in him, loved him perfectly, and was holy the religious and moral disposition of Adam, together with its practical development, the reformers called the image of God, without drawing any distinction between the bare faculty itself and the exercise of that faculty in correspondency to the divine will. From the very fact that Adam possessed this faculty, he was, according to them, truly religious, truly pious, devoted in all things to God and his holy will, and perfectly united with him. Catholic theologians, on the other hand, distinguished very exactly between the one and the other, so that, to determine rightly the distinction, they commonly termed the religious faculty, quote unquote, the image of God, but the pious exertion of that faculty, quote unquote, the likeness unto God. We shall later see what mighty consequences were involved in these, at the first view, trifling doctrinal differences that seemed merely to concern the schools, and we must, in the meanwhile, prepare ourselves to expect, on the part of Luther, a most singular doctrine respecting original sin. Moreover, the non-distinction averted to, had partly its foundation in the endeavor of the reformers, to be in their teaching very practical and generally intelligible. Hence, they avoided, with as much care as possible, all distinctions and abstract expressions, as a scholastic abuse, but thereby frequently fell into a strange and most pernicious confusion of ideas. The second main point of difference between the two confessions in the matter under discussion is the doctrine of free will. Luther asserted, and he would have this assertion maintained as an article of faith, that man is devoid of freedom, that every pretended free action is only apparent that an irresistible divine necessity rules all things, and that every human act is at bottom only the act of God. Melanchthon taught the same. He also comprised all things in the circle of an unavoidable necessity and predestination, declared the doctrine that God is the sole agent to be a necessary part of all Christian science, and thereby the wisdom and cunning of human reason were duly repressed and condemned. And he repeatedly insisted that the word quote unquote, freedom of election was unknown to Scripture, and that its meaning must be rejected by the judgment of the spiritual man. He added that this expression, like the very pernicious word quote unquote, reason, to which he declared equal hostility, had been introduced through philosophy into the Christian church. From no other cause did he deem himself so well justified in daring to apply to the professors of the theological faculties in the Middle Age, the so-called schoolmen, the terms sophists, theologues, and the like, as on account of their crime in having established among Christians the doctrine of human free will so firmly that, as he complained, it was scarcely any longer possible to root it out. Perceiving, after more diversified experience, and mature reflection, especially after the controversy with the Catholics, the prodigious abyss into which such a doctrine must precipitate the Church, he subsequently abandoned and even combated it. On the other hand, we are unacquainted with any such recantation on the part of Luther, and the formulary of Concord gives an express sanction to the writing of Luther against Erasmus. This doctrine of the servitude of the human will, has had the greatest weight, and its influence according to Belongton's assurance pervades even the whole religious system of the Lutherans. In regard to the original constitution of the human body, both confessions are agreed, and if the Lutheran formularies speak not expressly of that property of Adam's body, whereby he would have remained exempt from death, this silence is to be ascribed to the total absence of all controversy on the matter." Subheading 3. Calvinistic Doctrine of the Primitive State of Man In enlarging on the spiritual condition of the paradisiac man, Calvin, by representing it with Luther as one devoid of supernatural graces, sets himself up in opposition to the Catholic Church. But by expressly ascribing to the first man the gift of free will, he equally opposed the Lutherans. In other respects, we find in this article no difference of doctrine and the same remark will hold good of the confessions of the Reformed Churches. In respect to the injurious consequences produced by the sin of our first parent on his corporal existence, and that of his posterity, most of the formularies of the Reformed expressly teach with Calvin that death is the fruit of Adam's transgression. But the question here occurs, how Calvin could feel himself justified in attributing free will to Adam, when, in common with zwingli he completely shared luther's doctrine touching a divine necessity of all occurrences and even pushed this opinion to the extremist verge conscious of this discrepancy he observes undoubtedly that the question as to the mysterious predestination of god is here unseasonably mooted for the matter at issue is not what could have happened but how man was originally constituted in despite of this expressed demand, to hold the two doctrines distinct, that a divine necessity of an absolute eternal destiny, which enchains and holds all things together, and that of the freedom of man prior to his fall, we are at a loss to discover how this claim can be satisfied, for these two doctrines are, in fact, incompatible. And with the adoption of the one, the other must be abandoned, unless to the word freedom, a notion be attached, which in reality destroys its very existence. And such is really the case, for as we shall have occasion to show, Calvin evidently, after Luther's example, makes, not inward necessity, but outward constraint, the opposite to freedom. On the other hand, Melanchthon has expressed himself openly and honestly on the mutual correlativeness of these two articles of doctrine, and declared that, from that very correlativeness they should be simultaneously treated. We shall find, moreover, that Calvin even teaches an eternal immutable predestination of the fall of the first man, an opinion which is certainly quite incompatible with the proposition that Adam was free, that is to say, could have avoided sinning. Hence it has happened that, though some symbolical writings of the Reformed communities have, with Calvin, expressly ascribed free will to Adam, others have judged it more expedient in what they teach respecting the paradisiac man to pass this matter over in silence, and this was evidently the most consistent course. We think it still proper to direct attention to the internal reasons which Calvin alleged in behalf of the doctrine of an absolute necessity destructive of all human freedom, partly because it will then follow that it ought not, at least absolutely and immediately, to be confounded with the pagan phaeton, and partly because a knowledge of this reasoning will be of importance in later investigations. If Melanchthon, after indulging in harsh assertions, could assign no other practical ground for this doctrine than that the relation of man towards God averted to, was very useful towards subduing human arrogance. Calvin, on the other hand, observed that the knowledge, not merely that God guided the affairs of the world in small, as in great things, but that nothing whatever could occur without the express ordinance of God. Destinate Deo, comprised a very abundant source of consolation, for it is only in this way man feels himself secure in the hands of an all-wise, all-ruling, powerful, and indulgent father. Hence the idea of a divine permission, and such a conduct of things, that ultimately everything, even evil in the world, conduces to the benefit of those who serve God, did not satisfy him. Hence, the idea of a divine permission and such a conduct of things that ultimately everything, even evil in the world, conduces to the benefit of those who serve God, did not satisfy him. He believed the elect insecure, and the notion of a divine providence not sufficiently defined, unless, for example, the assaults of an enemy on an elect were absolutely willed and ordained by God. Moreover, even the public confessions of the Reformed occasionally adopt this view, which Calvin here enforces, of the providential guidance of all things, mitigating considerably, however, this opinion and evincing a very laudable dread of stamping on their articles the harsh spirit of calvin by the latter however as well as by his disciple theodore beza the opinions of to respecting divine providence were held with such tenacity and carried out with such consistency that they found it a matter of extreme difficulty to convince the world nay in despite of all their eloquence and dialectic art they utterly failed to convince very many that they did not, in fact, refer all evil to God. We are bound to enter more fully into the investigation of this subject. End of section 12